This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, we're going to be discussing an upcoming case in front of the Supreme Court that could have major implications on Roe v. Wade and the legal prohibitions placed on abortions in the United States. This has come up because the Supreme Court is taking up Dobbs versus Jackson's Women Health Organization. Richard, before we get into the details of that case and what it could mean for the country, maybe you could take us back to what abortion rights look like pre-Roe v. Wade and fill us in on where things stand right now. Sure, I'm happy to do this because there's a great irony. Um, I first became engaged with the abortion question in the fall of 1968 when I started teaching at the University of Southern California. And the one tidbit that I remember most vividly from that discussion was that uh, Senator Hubert Humphrey, or Vice President Hubert Humphrey, who was running for president at the time, was asked by some prying reporter, is what is your position on the abortion issue? And what he said was, I don't have a position on the abortion issue. Why would anybody think that this was a federal question of any sort, kind or description? And indeed, that was exactly what the view was shared pretty much by everybody. That was not a left wing or a right wing view. Uh, There were many state laws on the subject. They varied from time to time and place to place. Um, The southern states tended to be more conservative. Texas may have had the most restrictive abortion law of their all. Uh, there were also, as one has to remember, by 1972, uh, my friend Jerry Rosenberg, who wrote a lot about this, said there were 250,000 legal abortions in the United States before Roe had changed. Well, then this case starts to come up, and I can still remember uh, talking about this in, in the ground. Uh, one of my friends and colleagues, Al Alshuler, I believe, was actually at the University of Texas at the time and was one of the people who cross-examined the lawyers for the plaintiff. And the word that came back is everybody was sort of laughing themselves silly about how this thing had gone because they couldn't imagine that there was any particular part of the United States Constitution and that in any way, shape or form would influence what the abortion debate was about. Uh, what was missed in that was the generative capabilities of Griswold versus Connecticut, a 1965 case in which after the Lochner era of essentially judicial denial of all sorts of interference on these questions, the Supreme Court decided that there was a right to privacy in the contraceptives, which meant that you could buy contraceptives in the state of Connecticut, notwithstanding a rule that struck that down. You try to figure out where this came from in the Constitution, and nobody could quite figure it out, given that Lochner against New York tended to bar any uh, constitutional challenges to simple sales of various kinds of commodities. Uh, But it was found in the penumbras of the Ninth Amendment, and so there was a kind of a wholesale ridicule by standard constitutionalists. And going into Roe v. Wade, this was the kind of feeling. Uh, nobody's going to do a Griswold number two, particularly on a very different state. Griswold was a situation in which the contraceptive issue had been resolved by legislation, and Connecticut was a lone holdout, I believe. Uh, but with abortion, virtually every state in the union has some kind of prohibition. And so to take this thing on on the basis of an indeterminate constitutional guarantee uh, was thought by most people to be beyond frivolity. And then, boom. 
right? Uh, the case gets argued. Uh, it is decided by Justice Blackman. He's not quite sure where the constitutional text lies that is going to deliver this. He isn't quite sure of the theory on which it takes place. But nonetheless, what he does is he divides the world into trimesters, said it's pretty much carte blanche for a woman during the first trimester, uh, powerful restrictions in the third and intermediate restrictions in the middle kind of period. I was then asked to write about this case by Professor Phil Curland at the University of Chicago for the Supreme Court Review. And I wrote an article which said, you know, I don't see the moral case for the abortion question. Uh, as best I can tell, this seems to fall within the police power and the protection of health and safety. Uh, our friend Curland changed the title of my article saying substantive due process by any other name. And he basically thought you didn't want to go through the analysis of whether there was a prima facie case or a state justification. You just wanted to shut this thing off. And, you know, the reaction that took place immediately, and I'll just stop on this remark, was dumbfoundedness on the part of everybody. Some people rejoiced at the prospects. Others were the other way around. I could still remember my conversation with Gerhard Casper, formerly, you know, my colleague and dean of the uh, president of the university of Stanford University. And so he says, Richard, he says, I can't abide what the majority did anymore. That is, it, it was a common reaction that people were kind of like the substantive result, but they couldn't understand the constitutional methodology. And as you get up to this Dobbs case, all of those ambiguities seem to survive. And now it turns out that, well, I mean, uh, this was January of 1973. Uh, so we're over 48 years into Roe v. Wade and the sort of the legal underpinnings are still very much in doubt. I think I just realized, Richard, that I want to hear more uh, more accents from you because that was that was quite good. But let's actually turn now to the Dobbs case. The issue at hand is whether a Mississippi law that banned abortions after the 15th week is constitutional. The state of Mississippi has asked the Supreme Court to overrule both Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, uh, the cases which generally granted the right to have an abortion before the fetus became viable. Can you take us through the merits of this case, especially in light of the state losing on appeals already? Well, I mean, this is one of these strange cases. Losing on appeal, you have to understand, means absolutely nothing in circumstances like this. Everybody knows that this case has been for higher circumstances. And so what the lower courts are doing is kind of trying to express what's going on. Jim Ho kind of said, you know, I mean, it's pretty clear under existing precedent that I have to uh, decide this case and so that Dobbs will lose. But on the other hand, and if you ask me what my opinion is, I'm a pretty devoted originalist, and none of this starts to make any sense. And so nothing that took place at the lower court will tell you anything about the way in which the Supreme Court is going to do this. And that's because, you know, stare decisis and precedent bind lower courts. When you get to the Supreme Court, there is then this endless debate as to whether or not uh, you owe fidelity to the established precedents that the court has decided on dubious constitutional provisions, or whether or not in the face of quote-unquote clear constitutional error, you can go back to the original text and the original structure and overrule intermediate positions. Can you do this, moreover, if it turns out there is some kind of reliance interest associated with the particular decision, given that clinics and practices have emerged? There's also the question of how this is going to play in the political markets. And again, you just see ambiguity associated with that. Um, I think it's generally been a pretty stable sentiment that most people believe that abortions are immoral. 
And the only reason they could be immoral is that they're upsetting some form of human life, uh, maybe not fully mature, but nonetheless a form of human life. And so people think that's very bad. But on the other hand, about a two-thirds majority also thinks that it's a moral decision, but not a legal decision. So you get some people who think it's both illegal and immoral, some people who believe that it's both moral and legal, and some people who believe that it's legal but not moral. Um, when you have that kind of a situation, the question is, what can you do? Here's another wrinkle, I think, which is may turn out to be decisive. Um, you take a state in which the abortion rights are zealously guarded, New York, and what do they do? They don't wait for the decision to come down. They immediately pass a statute which essentially says the law of abortion is, as it were, before Roe v. Wade is overruled. And and so what happens is if, in fact, you believe that this is a viable option in a strange way, what it does is say it's okay to overrule road. The political process is pretty robust. If people want to do this that way, we could go back to what Ruth Bader Ginsburg had said about Roe many years ago. This is something which should have been done through the political circles rather than through this legal circle. And states that want to pass it could pass it. Those that don't, don't have to do so. And we can have a federalist legislative solution. They're going to, people are going to be screaming about that as well, saying that sacred rights should not be subject to compromise. So what will happen, no matter which way this comes out, Tom, is there'll be as much divisions afterwards, as much anger and as much uncertainty afterwards as there were before. Uh, so these guys are getting themselves into a rather uh, deep quagmire, and it's not at all clear that anybody can find a way to get out. Uh, to put it in simpler terms, I don't believe in this circumstances there is a safe political conclusion. Um, if some somebody decides to duck it, they're going to be denounced for being cowards. If somebody decides to take it on, they'll either be cheered or booed, depending on which way it starts to come out. Uh, so, I mean, this is going to occupy a huge amount of attention in, the, uh, in, in popular circumstances. It's the kind of legal issue on which people can really grasp. It's not like COVID, where there's so many different strands moving back and forth that you can't hone in on one thing. Roe v. Wade is, I think, surely the most controversial decision in the last hundred years, more controversial than even Brown v. Board of Education, uh, because with Brown v. Board of Education, everybody knew which way the tide of history was running. But the question with respect to abortion is that there are many coarse currents and no tides of a discernible direction, which means that everybody can be his or her own master with respect to the subject. So hold on to your hats. It's going to be a very exciting time. So, Richard, every time a new Supreme Court position opens up, one of the most intense points of scrutiny is a candidate's attitude toward abortion. Do you think that having Roe be the law of the land decided with courts, not through the typical legislative outlet, escalates or de-escalates political tensions? Is American politics uh, worse off for having it uh, be decided in courts? And, And if it were overturned, what do you think we'd fight about in nominations in the future? Well, I, I think, in effect, it was a mistake. Uh, but it's um, much easier to make a mistake than it is to reverse a mistake. After all, it becomes embedded in your general culture and history. The reason I think it turns out to be a mistake is there's simply too much of a violent lurch in one direction to another. Um, you had this stuff being essentially subject to various forms of regulation in multiple states. As I mentioned before, there had been a lot of reforms that had increased the number of legal abortion. It was pretty clear that that pattern would continue 
continued throughout the 1970s. There would be pitched legislative battles. There would be sort of acceptable compromises. But when it's in the Supreme Court and everything is concentrated in a given set of people, as people start to say, well, do we want this kind of concentration of power with respect to a matter like this? What's the role for democratic institutions? What's the role for religious sentiment associated with this? And what happens is now, instead of trying to figure out how you work that great a compromise, you see in this particular case, everybody trying to figure out what to do. And remember, it's not just abortion that you have to worry about. There are all sorts of other things. Uh, what do you do with juvenile abortions and the question of parental consent? Uh, what do you do with abortions when it turns out that a woman has some kind of disagreement uh, with her, uh, the father of the particular child or is subject to some kind of impediment of one form or another? What do you do with respect to the way in which abortion clinics could advertise their services uh, to various kinds of people? To what extent is the federal government going to be required to fund these kinds of abortions out of tax dollars, which are paid in part uh, by individuals who are strongly opposed to abortion? Every one of these questions and more have come up in the last 49 years, and every one of them sort of gets the kind of uneasiness about this. So with respect to the question of whether or not if abortions are legal, can the Supreme Court uh, say that the state has to fund abortion if they're going to fund alternatives to abortion? It's a very, very hard case. I wrote something, I think, 28 years ago on this particular thing. I decided that it was 5-4. That's how close the arguments were. And at the time, I tended to think that probably you could have the selective funding. Having done more work on unconstitutional conditions, my sense is that you probably cannot, that whatever the choices are in a world without subsidies, you can't distort that choice in a world with subsidies. I feel the same thing about religious choices. So, for example, I was very much opposed uh, to the decision in Job Jones, which says, we know that we can't stop anybody from uh, requiring uh, no interracial debating as part of a, going to your particular school, uh, but we can nonetheless deny you a tax deduction. I don't think you can do that in any of these cases, but you can see where it goes. Every single collateral issue then brings in other kinds of doctrines and other kinds of principles, and, and the body of law is rickety. I do not treat this, by the way, as being a sign of the defect of the judges in question. I treat it as a fact that whenever you get a very complicated line of precedent, uh, they do not have predictive ability of what to do with the next case, and people will therefore start to tack one direction or another. Uh, this happens with so many different areas. It happens with the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause all the time, right? The bakery cases and things like that, uh, that you're just going to have to live with it. So my own sense about this is that I don't think it was wise to constitutionalize it. I think in the end what's going to happen is uh, the dominant position will be more legalization of abortion and more moral pressures against it. All right. Well, let's finish up on uh, the Supreme Court and the the recent composition change because it's not a 5-4 court anymore. It's a 6-3 court. But I want to ask you about two things. One, it seems like we've gotten a lot of recent decisions. And some people are arguing that instead of a 6-3 court, it's kind of a 3-3-3 court. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'd like to know what you think about uh, that idea. And then, uh, you know, these the the justices you studied their their writings before they were on the court you i think you have a general idea of maybe where they're going to argue and, and look at this case do you think that with the 6-3 court there does it indicate how they they might rule will they will they go for something as controversial as overturning roe 
Um, I don't think they will, actually. As you said, I think the 333 line in many cases is accurate, although in certain areas like uh, criminal procedure, it's not. We have a strange alliance between Neil Gorsuch and Sonia Sotomayor, both of them having libertarian instincts with respect to the police. Uh, but the Fulton case, I think, was uh, kind of an instructive situation on a very serious question having to do with Smith, one of the worst decisions that Justice Scalia ever penned, in, in which what he said is that so long as there is a neutral law, it doesn't matter whether it has a disparate impact on people of faith. And this essentially replaced the rule which said you have to make accommodations for religion, which had been pretty much accepted beforehand. The Scalia position was subject to an incredible amount of attack and vitriol. At one time, everybody was opposed to it. Now it gets split because of all sorts of changes in the locus. It's no longer individual services uh, or, or consumption of peyote as it was in Smith. It's now, uh, do you have to have the federal government pay for um, contraceptives and things of that particular sort of private firm? So it switched a little bit. Uh, but when they had a chance to go after a really egregious decision, what happened is Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett decided uh, the Philadelphia system has to go down, but on grounds so narrow that Justice Alito, who is a much more full-throated opponent of the thing in Smith, this is, you know, an absolutely useless decision. It applies to this case and no other case after it. And so we're still left with the fundamentally rickety structure associated with the Smith situation. Uh, but incrementalist judges are always in favor of slow accommodation, even at the expense of very high doctrinal awkwardness. And so when it comes to the abortion stuff, um, I think you're likely to see that. There's a kind of an irony in all of this. I believe that all three of the centrist judges are Catholic um, and actually pretty religious Catholics at that. And my guess is that all of them will if they strike down Roe, we'll do so in the gentlest terms, meaning that it's going to be pretty easy to legislate around it. Or what they will try to do is to probably say, no, we think on the basis of stare decisis, this thing ought to uh, be clever, and we will then consider any further legislative situation. But we don't like, like the one that is done in the Dobbs case. So my guess is it will probably be upheld. Uh, but also, I think that the legislative stuff is going to become very powerful. It may be upheld, and people will say, well, this is not a real boost of this decision. It's kind of a tepid endorsement of something which is still likely to become unglued. And so I think you're likely to see more initiatives like the one in New York of trying to get this thing uh, sort of through by legislation. And as I've indicated before, generally, I think it's a good idea. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at the way in which the various civil rights commissions have gone after people of faith and have told them either you serve folks who uh, disagree with you on gay rights or anything else, or you get subject to an education recamp, uh, you can't say that the legislative alternative is always beautiful. And in those cases, I really did think that the free exercise argument should absolutely dominate everything else. So this then is part of the problem. You know, Richard won one side, Richard on the other side of all of these kinds of questions, not very professorial, is the truth about the matter is there is no clear line uh, that is universally accepted, which tells you which things should be political and which things ought to be judicial. Everybody agrees that there's some rights that ought to be defended against the majority imposition, and everybody agrees that there's some things in which minorities ought not to be played out. Where does that line go? I do not know, says somebody. So just to give you another a kind of reminiscence about all of this. Right now, uh, there is a very serious question. My 
good friend Todd Zawicki had a very bad case of COVID. He thinks natural immunities work extremely well. Um, he has been told maybe by, we don't even know yet, by George Mason, that he may, if he wishes to keep his job, have to take a vaccine, which he thinks is dangerous to his health. He has some very strong affidavits by his own physician and, and by eminent doctors like Koldorf and Bacharia, uh, the Stanford and Harvard people been on this all the time. And so uh, we see the Biden administration kind of trying to jam this thing down everybody's throat. And we now see some genuine kind of pushback. It's exactly the same question, Tom, right? Uh, does the majority on something like this get its way? People cite a case like Jacobson against New York. Uh, it's a famous case. The problem about Jacobson is it really did endorse the police power. The sanction was $5. So now imagine what you told Mr. Zawicki was, sir, we agree that you are duty bound to take this. And if you decide not to take it, the sanction is a $50 fine. I don't think you'd do anything except pay it. Right? Um so a lot of it depends on what the choice of remedy is. That makes things very odd. That's going to happen in the abortion cases whatsoever. And so even people like myself have internal difficulties in their own dialogue with themselves. You go to sleep at night thinking one thing and you wake up the other. If you then get people of different views doing the same thing, uh, this kind of thing will not be stopped by one decision. So think of this as a rather long and complicated process. Don't think of it as a, as a single point in which everything is going to stop. The battle over Roe v. Wade, the battle over its religious implications, does life begin at conception or sometime after that, is not going to be resolved by one Supreme Court decision. It's just in the nature of things for this to happen. So once you open up Pandora's box with Roe, it's going to be a lot harder to close it down again. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.